it's, it's just really good to be here. Thanks for the invite from Joel, but uh, thanks for all of y'all's uh, patience with me as I preach the word to you today. Um, yes, I am planting in Fort Wayne, uh, and you all, maybe unbeknownst to some of you, are supporting me in this work. Uh, certainly you're praying for me. Uh, Joel just uh, asked for more prayer, and, and I would receive all of it. But even financially, your church is actually contributing to my efforts as I get ready to move to Fort Wayne to plant a church. And I brought these along today. They're on the, uh, on the table out there. This is a little bit more information. On the back, it talks about who I am and, and my family who's here with me today. Um, ways that you can follow along with prayer. If you want to sign up for a newsletter, you can do that on the website. Um, and then just a little bit more about Fort Wayne and, and the type of church we want to plant. So take one of these with you. Uh, probably one per household or two per household would be great. Um, and you can use these, maybe put it on your refrigerator to remind you to pray. Um, like Joel said, there's a lot of, there's a specific person named Satan who would love it if this would fail, right? And, and our tools against him are prayer. So I would really love if you guys could use your tools or your weapons, as it were, to, to help me uh, overcome the, uh, the devil. Um, but we're not here to talk about church planting necessarily. We're here to hear from God. That's what this worship service is about. Um, and as Joel alluded to, we're going to be doing two sermons back to back, both from Romans chapter 8 and both on the idea of justification. What is justification? What, what do we do with our justification? Why does it matter to us? Okay, so today we're going to look at the text from Romans 8 verses 28 through 34, which is printed here in your bulletin. You might want to have that open. Uh, and the main theme is going to be justification. It leads to a security in our faith. Then next week, uh, yes, you were, you were right. It'll go up through the, ver- uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 39. And the main theme will be fairly similar. We'll still be talking about justification. But this time, how it assures us of God's love for us. So uh, two sermons back to back, both on this idea of justification. So hopefully by the end of next week, you'll uh, emerge with a little better picture of what it means to be justified in the Lord. Um, so without any further ado, let's read the text and then we will hear from God, uh, in the preaching of his word. Um, would you please stand? I don't know if that's normally customary, but I would like to stand, uh, to show respect for God's word. Romans eight chapters, uh, verses 28 through 34. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Let's pray. Father God, we long to hear from you and we long to know that we are justified by you even when the world would say otherwise. Let us put our security in you today. It's in Jesus, your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. 
So you might have already picked up on this, but the big idea of today's sermon is going to be this. God graciously gives all things to Christians, so you don't need to fear this world. And so if you are scared at what might happen when somebody finds out you are, that you're a Christian, this sermon is for you. Okay? We're going to do uh, three sections. It's broken down by the text itself. You'll notice the question marks in this text, right? Uh, there are three big questions. There's actually four questions, but there's three big ones in here. Um, who is against us? Who brings a charge against God's elect or who accuses us? And the third question is, who condemns us? Is it a surprise to anybody that we might find this passage relevant? I think those questions might be pressing for some people today. Who brings an accusation against the Christian? Well, a lot of people do, right? And in the context of Paul writing to the Romans, there were a heap load of accusations and condemnations. Christians were being put to death in Paul's era uh, for their Christian faith. But these questions are also really fitting for our climate as well. We might not have the same level of violence that ancient Rome did, but the church is under scrutiny, right? There are people who are against the church. There are people who are accusing Christians, and there are people who are even condemning Christians. But let me restate the big idea here. God graciously gives all things to Christians, so we don't need to fear this world. So let's start with the first question. Who is against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's unfold that question. Um, being against something, it doesn't have to be so extreme as putting something to death, right? Like Roman persecution, that's definitely being against, but it can be smaller than that too. It can be a billion little tiny challenges that are laid out before you because you are a Christian. They could be obstacles to your faith or extra hurdles you have to overcome because you believe in Jesus. It doesn't take a lot for something to seem like it's against you. A lot of times I'll just hear comments. You might hear similar comments like, uh, modern science knows more about what constitutes a child's life. Right? Or, or the church doesn't have any business invading in defining marriage. You've heard that before probably. Many people are against Christians because it impinges upon their freedom. You might have heard that as well. In the workplace, you might have actually yourself received some sort of slight. For teachers, it makes demands on what topics you can touch on in the classroom. Or maybe you're forced to teach on something that you would prefer not to teach on. For students, uh, maybe you have to do an assignment that makes you think objectively and set aside your faith. I remember when I was in college, I had to do such assignments, writing papers that were told to me as part of the assignment, don't view this from a perspective of faith. How can I not? I'm a Christian. You might be an employee of a company with an HR policy and regulations that promote things that Christians should not be promoting. Paul assumed that, just like I just listed, that there would be a list of people who are against you. He assumed that. That's why he's writing this scripture, right? That's why he wrote this question down. There are these big society-level pressures that Paul would have seen, like a general sense that science is the way forward, for instance, in our context, that we're better off without religion because we can now explain things better than religion does. 
In fact, the argument goes, or at least the way I've heard it, society would be better if Christianity sat back and listened from time to time. Or maybe that religion is actually in the way of society's progress. But the answer that Paul gives is that God, the creator and ruler of all things, is for you. Okay? What difference does that make, that God is for you even when all these things are against you? Well, for starters, he's for us, right? We have a promoter who's in our corner. We've got somebody on our side. Let's just imagine what it would look like just to have a buddy with you in those situations that I mentioned earlier. Let's say you're, uh, you're in the workplace and, and your boss comes and has to have a little, a little talk with you about what's been going on because you're a Christian. Um, and you just have one buddy who says, no, actually, I agree with you. That would make a difference, wouldn't it? It'd make you think, well, at least I'm not crazy for thinking what I think. It makes a difference to know that somebody is for you. And that, that's really good, but, but let's play out that same scenario again. But let's pretend that person has some level of authority. Pretend it's the boss of the company or the, the principal of the school or something like that. That makes even more of a difference when they say they're for you, right? Because they actually have some power in the situation. But finally, one more time, think through that scenario and pretend that God, maybe don't pretend, realize that, that God is the one who is for you. Right? He doesn't just have authority, but he was the one who created the person who's actually talking to you. He's the one who defines the morals of that person and of you. He's the one who works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, as we read earlier. This text is saying that, yes, it may be true. In fact, it is true that people are against you. But you have God himself to back you up. That makes a huge difference. He is for you even when the world is against you. So yeah, we do recognize. I think, I think Christians everywhere ought to recognize that there are people arrayed against you in your faith. And normally a posture towards a threat, if somebody comes against you, we normally get like a fight or flight response, don't we? We get anxious. We get a little bit worried about what could happen. And there are Christians who would like to say, no, leave me alone, right? That, that, that run away from that level of, of againstness, right? Or we do fight and we put up our, our fists and say, you can't tell me what right and wrong is, right? And we get really defensive and, and angry at our enemies. We can't stand to see our faith community against the ropes and losing ground in society, right? It, it doesn't feel good. But this text actually pushes us in a different direction. Not towards fight or flight. It pushes us towards security. Our response to those who are against us, therefore, is, it's not defensive. It's not this kind of posture, right? It's the opposite. If, if God is for us, then the attacks and the maligning of the culture surrounding us, it just kind of doesn't add up to that much. God is for you. What does this person's attack mean? It doesn't mean much, does it? Maybe your boss or your teacher does want to press hard to make you feel shame or belittle you. But God himself is for you. Feel no fear. You can stand firm no matter what comes your way knowing that God is on your side. And we can go one step further to answer this question because Jesus did that same thing. 
right? Jesus was not defensive, and he didn't run away either when the religious rulers tried to keep him down. He did not run away when they mocked him. He stood firm and he engaged with them. Why? Because he knew the Father was for him. Nobody could stand against him because the Father was for him. And if you're in Christ, we can be assured that God is for us too. So that's question one. Let's move to question two. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It says in verse 33. Notice the amplification here, right? This is a a step forward. Bringing a charge is a bigger deal than just being against something, right? We see that in our political situation right now. Think about presidential politics. Is it a bigger deal to be against somebody or to bring a charge against that person, right? We're seeing that's a bigger deal to bring a charge than it is to just say, I'm against that thing, right? It's going to extra measures. There's no longer someone just generically saying, I'm against that thing, but now there's charges and they need to be judged. They need to be adjudicated. It's more serious. In fact, for Christianity, there have been lawsuits, even Supreme Court cases, within the last couple of years regarding Christian free exercise of religion. So, so it's really not an outrageous question to ask who can bring a charge against God's elect because it's literally happening, right? I'm not saying Paul is writing to our context, but goodness gracious, we can definitely apply what he says. Now, I would imagine that nobody here, or hopefully nobody here, is a personal party in a lawsuit against them uh, for being a Christian, but, but we probably can think of accusations that are lobbied against Christians overall, or that are relevant to us. And I'm going to focus on one specific arena where accusations are freely and regularly brought against the Christian faith. Social media. And I'm not going to rail against social media, but I do read some pretty crazy thoughts. Um, there's a, uh, has anybody heard of Reddit before? Do you guys know what Reddit is? It's a website and kind of anybody can contribute whatever they want to on Reddit, okay? And there's a, a sub-genre of Reddit where people write. It's called CMV, Change My View. And what they do is they'll say CMV and then they'll type something and see who responds to them to try to change their view, okay? Here's some of the things that I read on this Reddit. Change my view. Christianity is a slave religion. Yikes. Uh, Change my view. The world would be so much better without Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Change my view. Christianity as an organized religion is fundamentally flawed, cultish, fake, and full of liars. That's an accusation. The worst one, I think. Change my view. Christianity is evil. Now, these are views that people are holding, and they're saying, I actually think this, and I need somebody to try to change my mind. These are views that are held by people. Now, is it true? Do we impose our beliefs on others? Are we hateful? Are we misogynistic? Are we bigoted? Are we a cult? Are we liars? Are we evil? Those are accusations, right? They require a response, perhaps, one might think. Now, that's social media. Anybody can write on social media, right? But this is in published news as well. Here's uh, a, a newspaper called The Citizen Times. It's in Asheville, North Carolina. There's, there was an Ask the Editor column. So somebody sent a letter to the editor 
And he said, and it was, he was talking about his views of homosexuality. And he said, I don't hate anybody, but I received the church's teaching on homosexuality. Am I a bigot? That's a fair question, I think. And a lot of Christians would maybe want to know the same thing. The response from the editor of this newspaper says, by definition, those opinions make you a bigot. It was published in the newspaper. And, and he goes on and says, a belief isn't rendered any less bigoted because it's embedded in a larger moral code. Or what he's saying is, it's still bigoted even if you call it Christian. Like, say, that of the Bible, he adds. And then, and then this is his final sentence. No amount of religious fervor or tradition can make a wrong thing right. Think about that for a second. I read that whole quote just so I could get to that last sentence. No amount of re- religious fervor can make a wrong thing right. So what other, in other words, what he's saying is, I'm judging the Christian religion. I am the judge of what is right and wrong. Do you, do you sense that? The editor of this newspaper is now the judge and jury of right and wrong. One more uh, instance, there's an essay called Preachers of Bigotry, and this is from the Brookings Institution, so this is a national you know, syndicated website. It's, it's a huge news group. Um, and he was talking about uh, bigotry in the evangelical church, and he says this, I must remind readers that hate-mongering is not common in Christian communities of North America. Well, that's nice of you to say. He says, it is indeed a rare but egregious blemish found only among the evangelists. Yikes. I consider myself part of that group. <laughs> so I, apparently I have a rare but egregious blemish called hate-mongering. Those are serious accusations, aren't they? That's like a, a big thing to say. The Brookings Institution... <laughs> accuses evangelicals of hate-mongering. And this is a really reputable news source nationwide. Like, this is our news and our media talking about Christians this way. So who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, it seems like a lot of people can, right? It seems like we're reading it all over social media. We're reading it in our news, published for everyone to read. It seems like a lot of people can bring a charge against God's elect. But what is Paul's answer? God is the one who justifies. Justify means to show something is right. To show something is right. So let me rephrase the answer just for clarity. It means God is the one who shows us to be right. Not the world, not the news, not social media, certainly. This answer is actually a little bit surprising. It's certainly not an answer of panic, right? It's not, oh no, what's going to happen to us? It's not one of despair. He doesn't say, step one, prepare your defenses, everybody. We're going to war, right? He's not interested in a culture war here. He doesn't expect you to meet the demands of all these accusers. In fact, it says, God is the one who justifies Y-O-U doesn't appear anywhere in that sentence. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It's God who justifies. Justification belongs to God. It is His work to do, not yours. In fact, that's the only way it can be, right? Because remember that news article that I was talking about where the guy claimed to be judge and jury? 
saying he knows what is right and what is wrong, do you think he's really going to be convinced by a sound biblical argument? I don't think so. He could be convinced by the Holy Spirit, and I believe that. But I'm not going to trust in my justification before him. Right? I'm not going to go to him and, and wonder if I can be justified before that, that news writer. In fact, we might even say that you may be found guilty in the eyes of the world of all these things. That's a tough pill to swallow, right? You might be maligned. People might speak ill of you. But the problem is that what's happened is the measures of right and wrong have been so skewed that the world is not using a true evaluative method or criteria, right? Only God can justify. Only God can measure what is truly right and wrong. And I might also just quickly add, if you're looking to be justified in the eyes of the world, you might be looking to be justified in the wrong place, right? The only place where it really matters to be justified is before God. Because His justification doesn't just mean you're not going to face hardship again. It means you're going to have eternal life. There's a big difference there. Now let me apply this one step further because uh, lest you hear me saying, don't care about what anybody says about Christians, that's not true either, right? I'm not saying the way we interact with people who would accuse us doesn't matter. It does matter. We are to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. And in fact, 1 Peter 2 says it this way. When they speak against you as evildoers, which is what has happened, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? So your conduct before these people is going to be the way that you justify yourself before them. It does matter. Right? You should should seek to be righteous before them so that they can look at you and say, I cannot hold you guilty. How could I? I see your good works. Right? So this... Uh, We should seek to be uh, upright before our culture in that way. We should be above reproach, according to our conduct, within the standards of Christian morality and charity and kindness towards others. But I'll just say it one last time. In the day of the Lord's judgment, there's really only one kind of justification that's going to matter. It's not going to matter what the world thinks of you not going to matter. That's going to be gone. That's going to fade away. It's the justification in the eyes of God that's going to matter to you. And you've received that. This verse provides tremendous comfort for the Christian who's being accused because God's justification rests on one thing, one thing alone, faith in Jesus. That's what our justification rests on. So if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you've been justified by God. It's, it's truly that easy. You don't become justified once you get your life cleaned up and and once you stop sinning and not because of your good works. You're justified the moment you put faith in Jesus. And then God sees you as righteous from that instant onward. And that is really, 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 really good news. Even though our accusers become more and more numerous, it seems like this is happening day by day. They might be levying greater and greater accusations against Christianity. Our justification means that we will be found guiltless before God. And we do not lose it. We cannot lose it based on the craftiness or the quantity of the world's accusations. So Christian, if you receive an accusation or a charge, 
Trust firmly in your justification by God. Then the third question in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who condemns us? Condemnation is a further intensification of the situation. We started out with something being against us, which is, you know, it it can be small things, just like a comet here or there. Then accusing, which is a little bit more serious. And now condemning, right? Condemning is the thing that happens after you've been accused and then subsequently found guilty of that charge. Once all the evidence has been weighed, you receive a guilty verdict and you await your sentencing. That's what condemnation means, okay? It's a reasonable question. Who is to condemn? But for, for just a, a little quick aside, that question is actually a little bit uh, unreasonable to ask as well. And here's what I mean. For one to condemn somebody, they would have to believe in a judge, right? You'd have to believe in a judge. The problem is, with, with a lot of people, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of people would claim to be atheists or materialists, meaning that they don't believe in any kind of a God, they just believe in, in what's here, right? Just creation. But that means that the only judge that can be is you. You're the only judge who can really claim what is right and wrong. You can only trust in your own judgments on defining good and evil. And it's only monotheism and particularly Christianity that believes in this objective judge who can judge every person equally and impartially because God is the, is the standard keeper. So it requires a belief in God to even condemn somebody, right? In other words, let me, let me put it this way. When somebody condemns a Christian as a bigot but doesn't have a God themselves that they look to, they're, they're literally only saying, I don't like that. That's all that they can say. They can't make judgments of good and evil. They can only say, that doesn't seem good to me. That's just, it's just a tiny hole to poke in that argument. Maybe it's not such a tiny hole. Maybe it's a hole that we can poke in the argument of those who would try to condemn you from a non-Christian perspective because they can't define evil. They have to come up with their own standards of right and wrong. But further, let's take this a different direction. I want to mention that Christians are very literally being condemned by law in countries today, right? Not so much in the United States. Definitely in ancient Rome that was happening in Paul's original context as he was writing these words, But there are people in this world today being uh, subjected to forced conversions away from Christianity, being forced to recant their faith. They're being forced to worship in secret, hidden gatherings. In some places, you're only able to deliver a Bible through illegal operations. Talk about a strange cartel. The, The Bible smuggling industry is a real thing. Isn't that crazy? So in some ways, we can interpret this verse in a fairly literal sense. Some literally receive condemnation for their faith, a guilty verdict in the eyes of their their own law because of their faith. So for some people, I'm, I'm imagining that verse 34 is actually a huge comfort, what we're going to read in a minute. And when we close, we're going to pray for those Christians as well. 
But, but Satan takes it one step further because uh, what Satan does is he actually does accuse you before the Father of Heaven. In fact, you can almost think of Satan like a prosecuting attorney who's, uh, I mean, Satan literally means accuser. That's what it means. That's what the word Satan means. So the fact that we're thinking of him like a lawyer who's accusing somebody, that's a, a fair characterization of his wicked scheme. Uh, so he stands before God and he, he murmurs to him, this one is guilty, God. Haven't you seen those sins that he's committed or that she's committed? Do you ever feel like you've overheard that? Do you ever feel like maybe those utterances have actually come into your, your heart and your mind? If you hear those things and you're a Christian, then know that those are lies. Okay? Those are false utterances. It is not true. Paul says the opposite is true in verse 34. Paul says, Christ Jesus, not you, Christ Jesus is the one who died. But then again, it's a little bit of a strange answer to the question. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ died. It seems like almost they're not connected, right? But they are connected. Follow along with this. Uh, Paul does not say, who is to condemn? You are guiltless. None of you has any sin to be ashamed of. We're sinners, right? We do have sin. But here's the difference. This is why Paul goes this direction. He knows that the way of dealing with condemnation is punishment. The way to deal with condemnation is by punishment. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that the wages of sin is death. So the punishment that our guilt deserves is death. That's the punishment that you deserve. But then what does Paul point to? Jesus Christ is the one who died. He was condemned instead of us. Right? First, Jesus was, was condemned before Pontius Pilate and received a death sentence. But he did not self-justify. He didn't say, no, I should be vindicated over this charge, these charges, even though that was true. He did not reveal his glory to them then and there as he could have. In fact, Satan literally tempted him to do that, to have the glory without the cross. So he, we know that he was condemned by others, and so he understands what it feels like to be condemned by others. He knows what you feel like when you feel condemned by others. He sympathizes with you. But this is the bigger point. He atoned for our sins when he was condemned before the Father. Right? Let me explain. In the economy of God's justice, Jesus took on our sin. He bore the condemnation and the chastisement and the judgment that was meant for who? For you and me, the guilty ones. Right? He took that on himself. He was condemned for the sins that we committed and our guilt was dealt with by somebody serving the death sentence instead of us. Somebody else served our death sentence. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, in verse 34, it says, even more, he was raised. This means that even though he was condemned, that sentence of death wasn't strong enough to overcome his righteousness, right? The righteousness that he gives to you and me. 
So when we talk about, you know, Christ was victorious, you've probably heard that language before. This is what we mean. The condemnation that was due for the sin of God's people, the elect, all the people of God, this resurrection was a vindication of his righteousness over the power of death. That condemnation wasn't strong enough to hold him in the grave. This resurrection has got a huge part to play in the act of justification, but, but just one thing that I want us to take away is that his resurrection was proof. It was proof that he could withstand and overcome the condemnation of sin. We can be sure that we no longer have to fear condemnation because we look at the resurrection. That's how we know we don't have to fear. If, or let me put it in the opposite way. If he was still dead, then we might still have to wonder, did Jesus become victorious? I'm not sure, because he's still dead. But he's not dead. He's not dead. He's alive. He was raised. So his righteousness couldn't, uh, it, it vindicated him over death. Death itself could not hold him. And then after he was raised to life, Paul continues, he ascended into heaven and, sit, and sits at the right hand of God. And to this day, he sits there and he intercedes for us. We've been talking about intercession a little bit this morning even. Remember what we said about Satan being our accuser? Let's get that like courtroom scene in our head again where Satan's accusing us before God like a prosecuting attorney. And Jesus intercedes for us. Okay, he's our defense lawyer. He speaks to the Father and he tells, he tells God, Father, you gave this one to me. He's innocent. Father, this one's your daughter. She's innocent. And so on and so forth. And I can tell you this. He's the best defense attorney in the history of history because he's won every case. Right? So when the question is, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? The clear answer is, nobody can condemn you when you're found in Christ. We already have the vindication over that condemnation in Jesus. And I'm going to conclude with the verse that I skipped, verse 32. Here can be kind of the takeaway from the whole sermon. When you find that the world is against you, whether someone accuses you or brings a charge against you, or even when you stand condemned in the eyes of the world, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Don't look inward for your answers when somebody condemns you or accuses you or is against you. Don't look inward. Look upward. Remember your justification. God has said you are not guilty. You are right. He didn't even spare his own son in order to justify you. Will he not give you all things? And, and downstream of that, I just want you to know that it's okay if you don't have the right answers. When somebody says something against you and you're kind of like, I, but, uh, that's okay. That's okay. Because who does justification belong to? It belongs to God. It's not to you. You can't mess it up. And you definitely don't need to make sure that everybody knows that you are right and they are wrong. Jesus was definitely right and everybody else was wrong, wasn't he? But he didn't lord it over anybody. Certainly he didn't lord it over us, right? 
Even when we sinned against him, Christ died for us. Instead, he withstood the condemnation so that you could be justified by his righteousness. All you need to do is just remember. Just remember. Stand securely. Remember who you're meant to be justified by. It's God who justifies and he has justified you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray to close. Lord God, we know and we recognize that we are justified by you. Just as you told us in this letter from Paul to the Roman church. Please help us remember this when we face hardships and all types of accusations and condemnations against us. God, we pray for Christians in in North Korea where Christianity is persecuted. In Somalia and Libya and Eritrea and Africa with Islamic sects that are persecuting them. In Nigeria where the southern area is predominantly Christian, but in other places where Islamic militants can attack without reprimand. God, we pray for the Christians in Afghanistan and in Yemen and Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and so many parts of the Middle East. We pray for the Christians in China, in parts of India, and the distant East. While we are separated by a great distance, God, we're united as one body in Christ. So we pray for those who are literally dying, being persecuted, having charges brought against them, or being condemned for just placing their faith in you. God, would you impress upon them the justification of Jesus Christ? That means that they can stand and be blameless before you, even when they are guilty in the eyes of the world. We pray that you, God, will grant to them all things when they are publicly declared the sons and daughters of God in glory. Their faith is not in vain, but will lead to their eternal life. But we too, God, we pray for us. We live in a secularizing world where our faith puts us in the crosshairs of many who would seek to destroy us and seek to destroy our faith in you. May it never be, Lord God. Our faith is in the solid rock. It's in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and in him we trust because it is him who justifies. We pray this all in his precious name. Amen.